出。It feels like I come in here with the intention of torturing myself, because instead of you know doing a little layup, doing talk radio the easy way, throwing the red meat at you, talking about the the low hanging fruit headlines, I、uh, I get it in my head that we need to talk about something deeper, more nuanced, a little bit more important, a little bit more fundamental before we dive in too deeply into any of the headlines. And tonight is such a night. Tonight is such a night where I'm going to be pulling philosophical teeth, and、uh, well, you might actually enjoy it if you give it a shot. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atzin. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here nine to eleven weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for "closing argument" in your iHeartRadio app. And our channel will pop right up for you. You can contribute to the show tonight. Share your thoughts. Respond to the news of the day. Contribute to the philosophizing at six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. So I want to start off by citing a news story, and we're not going to get too deep into talking about it, but I just want to bring it to your attention to sort of tee up the the topic that I want to delve into here. At the top of the hour, and we're going to come back around to this story later in the show and get more into the meat of it because I got a lot to say about this story. But I just want to throw this out there to set the stage, and that you can find this at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. This is posted on the、uh, TwinCitiesNewsTalk webpage. A nine-year-old boy from Colorado took his own life just four days after telling his classmates that he was gay. Jamal Miles told his mother. At the start of the summer, that he was excited to tell his friends when they went back to school. He went to school and said he was going to tell people he's gay because he's proud of himself. The boy's mother, Leah Pierce, told Fox 31 Denver. Unfortunately, Miles' fellow classmates were not as accepting of his sexuality as he had expected them to be, and they started bullying him. Four days after beginning the fourth grade, Miles took his own life. Four days is all it took at school. I could just imagine what they said to him. Pierce said, "My son told my oldest daughter the kids at school told him to kill himself. I'm just sad he didn't come to me." Pierce said that she believes there needs to be accountability for instances of bullying, and that parents should also face punishment for the actions of their children. And that's the bit that we'll come back round to and talk about later in the show because、uh, I, I got you know, a few things to say in response to that. But for the time being, what I want to present here in order to provoke your thought. Is the notion of a nine-year-old boy committing suicide? Pretty horrific stuff. Pretty terrible stuff. I myself have a nine-year-old son, and you know th- this is inconceivable. The notion of something like this happening, and you know it's this isn't this isn't the most prominent story in the news, and it's not even the best story to necessarily make the point that I want to make to you at the top of the hour here. But it it strikes me in the heart, and and it speaks to a a theme that I want to weave into our analysis this evening. And it, it may seem counterintuitive, but stick with me and try to try to follow what it is that I'm getting after here. It concerns me 
as I talk with you guys night after night, as I put my ear to the ground and look at the headlines and pay attention to the news of the day, it concerns me that there seems to be this dichotomy, which I regard as a false dichotomy, between individualism on the one side and collectivism on the other. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a clear and meaningful difference between those two things, individualism and collectivism, in the academic sense. But what I'm speaking to is something a little bit more nuanced. It's the sense, it's part of how the left sells collectivism and how they've been so successful in doing it over the years is they appeal to our sense of community. And our sense of community is legitimate, right? Like you, when you think about the significant relationships in your life, your marriage, your relationship with your children, with your parents, with your family, with the broader community, the people who you call friends, the people who you engage in business with and work with, these relationships are the source of the significance in your life. When you're lying on your deathbed and you're reflecting back upon the things that mattered, there are, there are many, many things that you may place high priority on now that you will not be thinking about at all when you're facing eternity. The things that you will be thinking about are those relationships. Those are the things which, which put significance in your life. And the left, knowing that, understanding that intuitively, appeals to that. They appeal to our sense of community, our sense of family, our sense of acting together towards what might be called a greater good. And they leverage that sense, that very legitimate drive that we all have to be part of something that is bigger than ourselves in order to rationalize policies that subordinate the individual. And in this sense, they create this false dichotomy where on the one hand, if as they present it, you have to make the choice between the significance of the community, the significance of the relationships that are of meaning in your life. You have to make a choice between that and your individual rights. And the case that they make to you is that you need to subordinate your individual rights in order to facilitate and benefit the broader community and these relationships of significance. This is a lie. This is a lie. This is a false dichotomy. There is a, a true dichotomy between individualism and collectivism. But there is no dichotomy between the value of the individual and the individual's rights and this communal value that is falsely appealed to in order to sell collectivism to you. In fact, the, the, to the extent that we have communal values, to the extent that our family has significance, that our community has significance, that our religious beliefs and, and uh, fraternities and fellowships have significance, they have that significance on account of the fact that it's made up by individuals. Individuals who have the capacity to choose, individuals who alone are capable of taking action, individuals who by their very nature are capable of thought, and individuals who uniquely have the capacity to love. Yeah, we're going to get a little mushy here tonight. To love. 
You know, the left loves to appeal to emotion. They love to appeal to compassion, to your feelings. And they do so in fallacious and destructive ways. But they're on to something in terms of persuasion. They're appealing to something that's legitimate, just like they appeal to the communal value of the family and the community in order to get you to buy in to horrendous collectivist ideas. They also appeal to something legitimate when they try to go after your feelings, but they just misapply it. And one of the errors that I see tactically and strategically and rhetorically on the right is that we fail to take advantage of what really is our home court, which is the domain of emotion, the domain of feeling. This is our natural playground, the domain of love and compassion and caring. Because here's the thing. There is only one entity in existence that is capable of any of those emotions. And that entity is the individual. And in fact, not only is the individual uniquely capable of expressing these feelings, but it, to the extent that you subordinate the individual, that you restrict his ability to choose, that you restrict her ability to act, that you try to box in the capacity for thought, to the extent that you do all of those things, you actually prevent meaningful relationship. You prevent the expression of love. You prevent the expression of compassion and real human feeling. So what the left is selling is actually antithetical to what they claim to value. The individual is essential to all of these communal ideas that they appeal to in an effort to sell you collectivism. And in that sense, it, it adds to what we already know about how insidious their agenda is. They're undermining the very foundation upon which the things they claim to value is built on, and that foundation is the individual. Now, on the right, we err in the opposite direction often. You know, increasingly, there's as many collectivists who call themselves Republicans and conservatives as, you know, it's, it's an increasing number. But historically, traditionally, on the right, there seems to be a overemphasizing of the individual at the exclusion of the community. And to an extent, this makes sense. To an extent, this is understandable because the individual is so foundational. The individual, you can't have the community without the individual. Everything that is of value communally originates from individuals. And so it makes sense to a certain degree to place focus on the individual. But we also, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We have to remember that that significance the significance that we value in our lives is largely found in our relationships. And I'm going to detour here a little bit into theology because, you know, I tried to think of a way to make this point without getting biblical, but I don't think you can. I, I welcome the, the attempt from any of you, 651-989-5855, to come up with a secular version of what I'm about to argue. The significance of relationship is so profound. When you look at the Judeo-Christian tradition and you look at the concept of the triune God, of the Trinity, God himself is a relationship. God himself is both individual and family, individual 
and community in one being. That's the significance of this. The, 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 the significance of creation itself was an initiation of relationship by God to his own glory. He said, let us make for ourselves those in our image. Why? So that they can bring glory to us. Glory, the concept of glory itself, only exists in a social context. This strikes me as somewhat important. And the, and this, the intuitive understanding that we all have of this, because I think we all do have a, a God-implanted intuitive understanding of the significance of relationship, the importance of these relationships in our lives and the importance of community, that it's all this whole concept of a greater good, this whole concept of something bigger than yourself. It often goes undefined, but we all seem to understand on an intuitive level that it's there, that there is something bigger than the individual in play. That is something that cannot be ignored. It cannot be thrown out. And to the, I think one of the big tactical and strategic vulnerabilities of the right has been that we failed to address this and we failed to apply it and tie it into and bake it into our advocacy for our ideas, for our philosophy, and for our policy prescriptions. We, we focus on the individual because the individual is vulnerable. The individual is the true minority in our society. The most endangered species politically is the individual. And so rightfully, we have our focus there. But we also need to look at the other side, to, at the broader value matrix, if you want to put it that way, of what the individual participates in and the values that are created by the interaction of individuals in a social context and make the argument, the moral argument, that the only way to secure and retain those communal values is to preserve the rights of the individual to choose that which they value. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855. Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Twin We all search for significance in our lives. And we look for, you know, where there's a void of significance, where we don't have a plan, where it's not readily apparent where we properly ought to be looking for it, we try to latch on to some truly bizarre sources of it. And we see this, we see this on the left in the form of the identity politics, you know, people deriving their entire sense of significance based upon really (laughs) silly associations. I'm black. That's that's the most important thing about me. I'm a woman. That is the single most important significant characteristic that defines me as a human being. And everything that I do and say and how I'm treated should all be defined by that and seen through that lens. The the point being that we're we're all looking for something that gives us meaning, that gives us purpose, that gives us value moving forward and is defined in a social context. And so when I consider this story that we'll get into the details of it later, and we cited at the top of the hour of a nine-year-old boy killing himself after coming out as gay because he was harassed by kids at school, you know, you, you hate to speculate as to motive or as to the internal 
goings on inside of a child's head. But it seems likely that, I mean, we've all been kids. We all understand the social forces that are in play in a, a scenario like that where you, you make yourself vulnerable to your peers and for whatever reason, they jump on you and they attack you, you know, whether physically or emotionally. And what it is, is it's an attack upon your sense of significance. This kid was worn down to the point where he felt like his, he, he, could on, he couldn't continue to live. His only option was to end his own life at nine years old. That happens when your sense of personal significance has been eroded to the point where you, you no longer feel as though it exists. And this is a growing problem in the broader society from Bloomberg. Diabetes is a well-known health threat in the U.S. with rates that have reached epidemic levels in recent years. But now researchers are reporting that another scourge has surpassed it in terms of deadliness, suicides, and deaths from drug overdoses. Diabetes is officially ranked the seventh leading cause of death nationwide. Self-injury, as the combination of suicide and drug-related death is known, killed as many people as diabetes in 2014 and is continuing to accelerate. The primary consequence of this unchecked crisis will be decreasing U.S. life expectancy, said Ian Rocket, a professor of epidemiology at West Virginia University in Morgantown. And they go on to dive into the statistics. And the question that occurs to me considering this emergent trend is why, why? Why is self-injury, why is suicide and drug overdose taking over diabetes as the seventh leading cause of death nationwide? What has changed in our society that has led more and more people to the point that this nine-year-old boy got to where their sense of significance, their sense of meaning, their sense of individual value has eroded to the point where they feel like the only escape is to end their life. And I would suggest to you that it has a lot to do with the the erosion of institutions, social institutions, particularly the family and the church. Yeah, I'm going there. <laughs> particularly the family and the church, institutions that filled that void, that provided a sense of significance, and not just a sense, because a sense of significance is what you get from identity politics. A sense of significance is what you get from you know, winning at a Madden 19 online gaming competition in Florida. So much so that when you start to lose and you're a little batty to begin with, you decide that the most logical course of action is to pick up a gun and start shooting your fellow participants. That, that's what happened in Florida over the weekend on Sunday. Th that too, that type of action too. It's not just self-injury, it's violence. It's harming other people emerges from this same problem, which is a lack of meaning, a lack of value, a lack of significance. When your sense of significance is ill-informed, when it comes from things that truly do not matter, like your race and your gender and how good you do at a video game, then you, you are vulnerable to having that sense of significance completely shattered. And for a lot of people, that's what's happening. Obviously, they're killing themselves. That's the evidence that this is happening in people's lives. Their sense of significance is completely shattered to the point where it no longer exists. Why? Because it's not rooted in something that actually matters. 
It's not rooted in something that cannot be easily undone, that cannot be destroyed. And that is what religion has provided in the past. That is what faith in God has provided in the past. It's provided in anchor, a sense of significance, a sense of meaning that cannot be assaulted, that cannot be defeated, that cannot be eroded, and that is eternal, that transcends and outlasts our our bodies, our planet, creation itself. That's something that's tough to erode. That's something that's tough to wear down. And the to the extent that we've drifted from, and look, I'm not here to preach religion to you. I'm not trying to evangelize, trying to convert you to my beliefs, per se, when it comes to theology. What I am suggesting is that there is a void in our culture that is irreplaceable. You, can, you can't find, you're not going to find something else that replaces God in people's paradigm. And all these efforts to do so, whether it's career or it's politics or it's your racial identity or you know whatever the, these things that people latch onto in order to to try to adopt or conjure some sort of sense of significance in their lives why do you think social media is so insane why why we have this politicized partisan polarized culture wherein you know people are literally threatening each other's children and they're you know they're taking to the streets and they're ready to punch each other out you know we got stories here in the stack about a, a girl who ripped a hat off of some kid's head a maga hat off a kid's head and she she's justified it and her dad's backing her up and what have the, we get to this point because people's sense of significance and meaning and value is tied up into something that is not important and when that thing is politics or when it's your racial identity or whatever the case may be, then any sort of threat to that narrative is more than just it's more. And this is why we have the safe space culture, by the way. This the whole the whole idea of needing to be protected from ideas that you disagree with. The reason why you need to be protected from ideas is because your sense of meaning and significance and value is defined entirely by the integrity of the idea that you have adopted. And so if somebody comes along with information or perspective or an argument that calls into question your preconceived beliefs as to what it is that you've derived your entire sense of self-worth on, it literally it's a literal assault on your person. That's how you feel it. That's how you interpret it and perceive it. And so that's why people need safe spaces their sense of self is undermined by the consideration of an alternative point of view. A society cannot operate under those circumstances. And increasingly, that's where we find ourselves. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, It's real easy to make this case about the importance of values and significance and meaning when the object of our criticism is the left, when the object of our criticism is the other guy. It's easy to make these points because we all agree, yeah, those lefties are pretty terrible. <laughs> those, those Democrats are pretty god-awful. Something should be done about them, right? But I think before we can 
you know, pick the proverbial splinter out of our brother's eye, so to speak. We need to take a little look. We need to be willing to take a little look at the log in our own, perhaps. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. Two ways to stream us. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join us at 651-989-5855. Brad, Amlin, Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. It's only been 18 months. I'll get it eventually at some point, Brad. Eventually. Uh, I know you're bad with last names, so I'll give you a pass. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter how long I've known you. There's, there's at least a 20% chance I'm going to get your last name wrong. So it's always in there. <laughs> you guys should see him right now. It's good entertainment. <laughs> All right, so... I, there's no real way to ease into this, and it, I'm, so I'm just going to get right into it. From Reuters, lawyers for U.S. President Donald Trump have asked a federal judge to dismiss a defamation lawsuit by adult film actress Stormy Daniels, calling it an attempt to suppress the president's free speech. In a motion filed on Monday in Los Angeles federal court, Trump's lawyers also said that Daniels, who has said she had a sexual encounter with Trump in 2006 and was threatened to keep quiet about it, had actually benefited from the intention brought by her dispute with the president. Daniel's lawyer, Michael Avenetti, called the motion baseless and desperate. Daniel's lawyer filed on April, or a lawsuit filed on April 30th, centers on her account of being accosted by a man in Las Vegas uh, at parking lot soon after she had agreed in May 2011 to talk about her alleged encounter with Trump to the In Touch magazine, and then it gives an account of that. And then uh, President Trump put out a tweet saying a sketch, because you know, apparently there was a sketch she pr- provided to the police, a sketch years later about a non-existent man, a total con job, playing the fake news media for fools, but they know it. Daniel said the tweet was defamatory. On Monday's motion, Trump's lawyers said the lawsuit was de- designed to chill the president's free speech rights on matters of public concern. They cited a law in Daniel's home state of Texas requiring that such a lawsuit be dismissed unless Daniels could provide clear and specific evidence for her claims, which they said she had failed to do. They also said that Daniels had not been harmed and had instead capitalized on the dispute with a nationwide tour of strip clubs for which she admittedly is being paid at least four times her normal appearance fee. Trump's longtime personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, pleaded guilty last week to violating federal election law by paying Daniels $130,000 not to disclose information that would be harmful to Trump. Now, this is a story that I would typically pass over in my consideration for the show because I, there's, nothing, there's nothing to really say about this. this. This is a story that defies analysis. It lacks any sort of substance or meaning or purpose other than to make this point, this one point that's related to everything that I've said this hour up until now. Everybody, everybody in this story is a horrible person. All of them. They're all terrible people. God awful, horrible human beings and everything they say about each other. This is like mutually assured destruction. This is the, the ICBMs, crossing each other's paths in midair as they go to their targets on opposite sides of the globe. This is everybody destroying each other with the truth about each other. Yeah, unfortunately, we're just the in-flight missile repairments here. It's, it's, it's god-awful, and the, and the, which wouldn't be a problem, but for the fact that one of these people is the president of the United States and... 
more importantly, in my mind, the standard bearer of not just the Republican Party, but increasingly the conservative movement. And this is something that is getting more and more difficult to bear. Because conservatism as such, there's, a, there's one story that I'm building up to here that really irks me. About that, that's a, an indication of just how fundamentally corrupt conservatism, quote unquote, has become. How there's just no soul to it anymore. No real meaning, no real value, no real worth to it whatsoever because it's now entirely about politics. It's entirely about winning elections. It's entirely about the brinksmanship of what happens on social media and the, the war with, with the media and the fake news and all this. Like these cultural battles of short term, purposeless non significance have become all encompassing and definitive of everything that we do and everything that we value. And it's it's truly, it's both mind-boggling and depressing. <laughs> but, but look, we can only go uphill from here, right? Like, we can only go higher from the low that we find ourselves in at this moment. Another story, USA Today. Trump aide says President weighing regulations on Google search engine that he considers rigged. Now, this is something that we've talked about on the program, right? And there is a here here in terms of is Google and Facebook and Twitter, are they biased against conservatives without question? Of course they are. There's no doubt. I don't think nobody who's serious doubts the bias in big tech, the political bias. But the idea that the answer to that has anything whatsoever to do with government action Something like that used to be anathema to conservatives. I mean, can you imagine? Let, I'll, I'll, let me just play this game. You know, I've already tipped my hand, but let me play this game where I just insert Barack Obama's name wherever Donald Trump's is in this story. President Barack Obama is considering new regulations on Google's search engine to address his concern that it turns up too many stories that are critical of him, his top economic advisor said Tuesday. The director of Obama's National Economic Council told reporters that the administration is taking a look at federal regulations for Google. He spoke to Obama in a tweet, accused Google's search engine of being rigged. The president also expressed frustration on Twitter that when Americans type Obama news into the search engine, it generates mostly negative news about him while, con- uh, while liberal media is shut out. Right Now, you guys know what I'm doing here. You know I'm switching the words around. But you know how you would feel if, in fact, those words were switched, right? There would be uproar across the board. Sean Hannity would be pulling his hair out. He'd be as bald as me, losing his mind over the, the not, and nothing's even happened yet, but just the consideration of possibly utilizing federal power to regulate a private company and dictate what speech is and is not acceptable. There's no way this would go unchallenged on the Obama administration. Donald Trump's considering it. Eh, good. I hope he does it. I hope he does it. Fake news. I hope he does it. Stupid liberals own the libs. Wasn't there like a survey that said 50 to 75% of Trump supporters would give him the power to censor the media? I believe it. I don't recall seeing that, but I, I I'll, wouldn't. I'll Google it. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, another story. This one from the New York Times. 
if GOP loses hold on Congress, Trump warns Democrats will enact change quickly and violently. President Trump warned evangelical leaders. Oh, this is the one that, you know what? We're going to get into this after the break because I need some, we need to go to a break and I need some time to fully respond to this development. This is the worst. This is the worst story that I read today. And and I read a story today, and I've already told you about it, where a nine-year-old commits suicide, and that's not as bad as what I'm about to cover here when we get back. 651-989-5855. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. So we've been talking in a meandering fashion about the importance of significance, the sense of significance that we as individuals have in our lives and how that's largely derived from our relationships. It's derived from our relationships in our families and our communities. And it's, it's derived to a large extent, at least historically, traditionally, by our faith lives, our theological beliefs, the tenets of our faith our view of God, our theology. And, you know, this is not a theological program. You know, you haven't tuned into Christian talk radio. We're not going to get into, you know, debating different tenets of theology. But it's important to note that this plays a meaningful and indispensable, in my view, role in our lives. And, you know, the people who are tasked, you know, (laughs) rightly or wrongly, with pastoring us, with guiding us, mentoring us on our faith journeys, are supposed to instill with a, in, in us that sense of significance, or they're at least supposed to foster our own quest to develop this sense of significance from our relationship with God and our relationships with each other and the, the relationships within the family and what have you. And these are very important because this, to, in my view, there's no question that the lack of such significance is what's leading to things like, suicide becoming a greater cause of death in our culture than diabetes, right? I mean, the, the, the only explanation for that, mass shootings, a kid deciding, oh, I lost a video game, time to shoot people in real life. That happened in Florida over the weekend. The only way that happens is when individuals and a broader culture loses their moorings in terms of what matters, what is meaningful, what has value, what has significance. And the people who are tasked with answering those questions for us or guiding us to the answers are clergy. And increasingly, clergy find themselves, uh, trying to figure out a way to put this delicately, to put this as diplomatically as I possibly can, whoring themselves out to politics. And in particular, to Donald Trump. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. There's a piece at the New York Times. There was apparently a meeting recently that took place between Mr. Trump and about 100 of his most fervent supporters within the evangelical community. And apparently reporters and television cameras were allowed to document the first part of the meeting, and then they were ushered out. But somebody recorded what took place next and provided that to the New York Times. And uh, this is what the, the resulting article says. Trump said, I just ask you, and he's speaking to you know these pastors, these evangelical figures, I just ask you to go out and make sure all of your people vote. Because if they don't, 
It's November 6th. If they don't vote, we're going to have a miserable two years, and we're going to have, frankly, a very hard period of time because then it just gets to be one election. You're one election away from losing everything you've got. Mr. Trump spent most of his private remarks to the group bragging about having gotten rid of the Johnson Amendment, a 1954 provision of tax law that threatened religious organizations like churches with the loss of tax-exempt status if they endorse or oppose political candidates. Under that amendment, Mr. Trump said religious leaders have been prevented from speaking their minds. Maybe, and this is Trump again saying this, maybe it's why you are very plateaued. I hate to say it, if you were a stock, you'd be like, you're very plateaued, Mr. Trump said, prompting laughter in the room. I really believe you're plateaued because you can't speak. They really have silenced you, but now you're not silenced anymore. So allow me to translate what the message is here, what Trump is doing. And it's genius. In his, his sale, this is where his business acumen, his salesmanship, every, all of the things that people cite as his virtues, the, the benefits, the features of Donald Trump are in play here. His ability to understand, to have identified what the motive of the people in the room is, and then to offer them something that gives him what he wants and appeals to their perceived need, masterful stroke here. What he's saying is, you guys like it when you get up in the, on the, uh, the dais on Sundays, when you get up in the front of a platform and you see the place packed. You love it when people are there to hear what you have to say. And I've noticed a little something about your industry, your church industry. It seems as though your stock price is falling. It seems as though you don't have as many people sitting in those seats listening to what you have to say on Sunday morning. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that the reason why is because you've been victimized by the government. You've been victimized by the Johnson Amendment. They've threatened to take away your tax-exempt status. And I am doing something about that. And that gives you the opportunity to get people into your seats. How? By preaching the gospel. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, God, no. By, by appealing to a higher sense of moral significance and, and preaching a, a restrained way of life that puts sin in its place and, and invites God to change your life. No, no, no. Come on now. I'm not asking you to sell that. You need to get people to come out and vote for me. You need to become part of the MAGA movement. You need to start stumping for Republicans from the pulpit. And the implicit promise, the implicit value proposition here for you guys is that when you do that, they will come. My supporters will start to come and they will start to fill your pews and they will start to fill your coffers and you will find yourself once again speaking to adoring masses and it'll be all about you and all about me and all about MAGA. He might actually have a point. Uh, there was a really good article, I think from the Atlantic, uh, surprise, surprise, about a year ago that said that most voter Trump voters who identify as evangelical don't go to church. Interesting. Well, this would certainly give them a reason to go there, right? And, you know, this is something that Matt Walsh speaks to quite a bit. You know, he talks about the dying church and the fact that people, you know, aren't, aren't going to church anymore. And, you know, he offers a suggested 
explanation for that, which I think has a lot of merit. And that's that the church isn't actually offering anything of unique value that you can't find literally anywhere else in the culture, right? If you, if you just need somebody to tell you how great you are and to give you a pep talk, and to, and to tell you that everything's fine just the way it is, and you go on being yourself and, and affirming everything that you already believe, you can get that from Oprah in the middle of the day on a weekday. You don't have to ruin your Sunday morning for it, right? And now Trump is offering yet another value that's not the gospel. Wonderful. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Admittedly, a little divisive, perhaps difficult to listen to. It was a tough hour. Appreciate you sticking with me through it. Let's get a little bit lighter. We'll take it a little bit easier here in the second hour. Start off with something that uh, I know we could all rally around. Closing argument. My name's Walter Atson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. You can find us 9 to 11 weeknights here on the air. And if you miss us for some reason, you can do a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up with our podcast feed. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. So there's a piece over at the Foundation for Economic Education known as FEE. Seven things I'd do if I wanted to keep poor people poor. And it's quite magnificent. It's written by a gentleman by the name of Brian Balfour. He writes, if I wanted to keep poor people poor, there are several government policies I would favor. Let's count them down. Number one, an expanding welfare state. For starters, I would advocate for a robust and ever-expanding welfare state. Programs like Medicaid, food stamps, unemployment insurance, etc., I would recognize that an effective recipe for keeping poor people poor is to create incentives that push them into decisions that prevent them from climbing out of poverty. Case in point, a 2012 study by Pennsylvania's Secretary of Public Welfare analyzed the decisions confronting individuals and families enrolled in various government welfare programs. Specifically, the study concluded that in the case of a single mother with two children ages one and four earning $29,000 a year through work, would be eligible for government benefits, such as Medicaid, housing vouchers, and subsidized daycare, equivalent to roughly an additional $28,000. Such a scenario puts this woman in a bind. If she finds a better job paying more or picks up more hours, she risks losing substantial amounts of benefits. She would make her family financially worse off, even though her paycheck would be bigger. Just to come out even, once taxes are factored in, she would need to find work paying about $69,000 a year to compensate for the lost welfare benefits. Not many low-skilled workers can make such a leap. This scenario is commonly referred to as the welfare cliff. Confronted with this situation, many individuals understandably opt to continue receiving the government benefits rather than help individuals the pervasive government incentives or the perverse government incentives created by the social safety net, quote-unquote, trap aid recipients on welfare. And the longer they remain out of the workforce or at a lower levels of employment, the less employable they become. It is a vicious, self-reinforcing cycle that keeps poor people and uh, and dependents on the state. Moreover, there is the impact the welfare state has on the family unit. Welfare programs break up families by replacing a father's paycheck with a government check and benefits. 
nationally since LBJ's Great Society ratcheted up government welfare programs in the mid-1960s, the rate of unmarried births has tripled. In my home state of North Carolina, families are roughly five times as likely to be in poverty when there's no father in the home. So that's the the top thing that uh, Brian would do, Brian Belfour, if he wanted to keep poor people poor, and that's to continue expanding the welfare state. And I have a, a personal experience from a few years back that underscores this point that he's making here. I briefly went through a period of unemployment when moving back to Minnesota after having spent five years down in Iowa. Don't ask me. That's a whole other story, a whole other adventure uh, for, for some time completely off the air. Moved back to the state and for a period of time didn't have a job and was you know struggling to find one. And so for a period of time, the only period in my life that I've ever been on unemployment, I took unemployment benefits. And I went into it with the conviction that I was going to work at the, the first job I could as hard as I could, as much as I could in order to make money so as to not be on the dole, so to speak. That was the way I went into it. I don't remember all the particular details. Suffice it to say, I got employment, or I got some part-time employment, and I started making a certain amount of money. And what I noticed was exactly what this guy points out, Brian Belfour at Fee, which is that by, by working whatever amount I was, let's say 20 hours, I don't know exactly what it was, but it wasn't full-time. By working, I was actually ending up with less money in my pocket at the end of the week than I would have if I just stayed home. Pull it unemployment benefits. Now, I don't care how great a work ethic you have. I don't care what what sense of personal honor you may claim. When it comes down to brass tacks and you're looking at how do I pay my bills? How do I pay my rent? How do I put food on my table for my wife at the time? You know, I'm going to do the thing that brings home the most money. And if the thing that brings home the most money is not going to work, then I'm not going to go to work. And that's, that's just a sensible, logical, rational, incentivized decision. The operative word being incentivized, incentivized by government, by the way government implements things. And if something like that, if that sort of calculation can happen to me in that temporary situation it certainly can happen in an in a institutional and perpetual and generational context with people who find themselves on welfare in perpetuity number two thing that brian belfort would do if he wanted to keep poor people poor progressive taxation policy he writes if i wanted to keep poor people poor i would also finance the welfare state poverty trap through punitive taxes on the job and wealth creators of society. The key ingredient to economic growth and thus a higher standard of living for society's poor is through productivity gains made possible by capital investment. High marginal taxes on profitable companies and small businesses alike discourage capital investment as businesses decide to either not expand or take their businesses to more investment-friendly countries job opportunities dry up. That one pretty well speaks for itself. Number three, a a constant thorn in our side here on the program, increase the minimum wage. Brian Belfort writes, if I wanted to keep poor people poor, I would advocate for higher government enforced minimum wages. 
The law of supply and demand tells us that the higher the price of a good or service, the less of it will be demanded. Other things held equal, of course. The demand for low-skilled labor is no exception. Higher minimum wages will price more and more low-skilled people out of the job of the labor market. Meanwhile, the higher wages will attract more job seekers willing to supply their labor at the higher price. Employers will be able to be more selective in their hiring, and as such, the lower-skilled job seekers will be crowded out of these opportunities by higher-skilled, less needy candidates. Minimum wage laws are an effective tool to cut off the bottom rung of the career ladder for those most in need of establishing work experience. And again, this is something that I can speak to anecdotally. The there, When I first came back to Minnesota for my five-year stint in Iowa, I applied for the exact same job that I had left five years prior and had something like, oh, I don't know, roughly five years of experience in prior to having left. I was not even called. I was not even called for an interview, having previously held the exact same job for the exact same place because the quality of candidates that they were receiving for that job had gotten to the point where you've got you've got people who have doctorates who are looking for jobs that are so far beneath their degree level that it crowds out lower skilled individuals who are bringing less to the table. Yeah, I once applied for a uh, a job with a news TV station here in town as like a. The person who writes the stuff on the screen, basically, right. and it sorts the news stories and writes what the anchors are going to say. Right. Part-time job. Uh, they said it would be 20 to 25 hours a week. You know, kind of varies depending on holidays and schedules and whatnot. Um, and I got an interview. I went into the newsroom and sat down, wrote some stories for him, had a little tryout. And I got an email saying that I had been rejected. And I asked the lady who emailed me saying, you know, what can I do better in the future? And she said, oh, we would have hired you, but somebody with 15 years of experience applied for a part-time job. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, I'm not, I'm not saying all of that is due to the minimum wage, but the aggregate of all of the interference in the market. And, you know, a part of what contributes to it is the subsidization, if that's even the right word. The subsidy of higher education that which devalues all of these degrees. So you got all these people who go to school for four more years in order to secure all these pieces of paper that tell you they're smart, all subsidized by the state to one extent or another, decreasing. the And again, pointing to supply and demand, the more these degrees are out there, the less valuable they are. Right. So everybody's got them. And they're all coming with the expectation that they're going to be able to to find jobs that are going to sustain them, and there's not enough jobs to go around. And so where do they turn to next? They go where they have to go, which is the job that you would have. Yeah, I think that was the biggest wake-up call graduating college was that uh, a good job is not that easy to find as a young person with minimal skills. Right. Well, and and transitional jobs, like a job to get you for... I, I feel as though in some ways... People my age, and I'm not that much older than Brad, but I'm old enough. There's a there's a big enough age difference for there to be a substantial difference in experience. And I feel as though people my age were kind of the action hero leaping out of the building as it was exploding behind them in this regard. Because when I was a kid, when I was 16 years, when I was in high school, you could trip over a job on a weekend afternoon by accident. Like everywhere you went, 
there were help wanted signs in the window and all you had to do you didn't have to have an appointment you didn't have to submit a resume nothing all you had to do was walk in and be like hey i hear you're looking for something and they would shove the broom in your hand and get you to work the next day if not that afternoon getting a job was extraordinarily easy in the mid to late 90s and something happened something changed where all of a sudden it became extraordinarily difficult to to even have a conversation with an actual human being and to be considered for any given position and the number of positions themselves started to dry up and you get and you got into this space where you know now we find ourselves where there there are a lot of jobs out there there's i think we saw i remember the headline we saw where there were more jobs now than there are uh, people seeking them right but that doesn't necessarily mean that the people who are seeking them are qualified for the jobs that are out there. Yeah, that's the problem. It's a skill shortage. Right. So this is a problem in two different directions. It's a problem in the sense that you have people who are overqualified for certain jobs that are crowding out lower-skilled individuals, and also you have the opposite problem whereby there are the lower-skilled individuals who don't qualify for job vacancies where the skills just don't exist because we haven't facilitated the the development of a workforce that can actually meet the current needs of the market. And we've only gotten to, what is this, number? that was number three out of seven of ways in which uh, Brian Belfour at Fee would uh, try to keep poor people poor. We'll skip the other four for you. I, I think that's it's adequate. sufficient to say the state being the state, government being the government, intervention in the economy, all bad for poor and rich people alike. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Well, I took a walk around the world to ease my troubled mind. We talked quite a bit last week about the killing of Molly Tibbetts in Brooklyn, Iowa. It, of course, became a catalyst for much frenzied debate regarding immigration policy. If only we built the wall, if only we controlled the borders, this murder would not have happened, so the narrative goes. Well, there's one person who, uh, well, might take issue with that characterization. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. From the Star Tribune, the killing of University of Iowa student Molly Tibbetts has prompted criticism of the U.S. immigration system because the man charged in her death is a Mexican farm worker. But the victim's father told mourners he's been embraced by the local Hispanic community. Speaking Sunday afternoon to more than 1,000 people at a ceremony at his daughter's former high school, Rob Tibbetts didn't directly respond to comments by President Donald Trump and others who quickly seized upon the suspect's citizenship to argue for changes in immigration laws. However, the Des Moines Register reports that Tibbetts said he encountered Hispanics at Mexican restaurants and elsewhere who were sensitive and kind during the weeks he spent in the central Iowa community of Brooklyn to help search for his daughter. The Hispanic community are Iowans. They have the same values as Iowans, he said. As far as I'm concerned, they're Iowans with better food. The body of 20-year-old Molly Tibbetts was found August 21st in a cornfield outside Brooklyn, where she had been staying during her summer break from the University of Iowa. Authorities have said she was abducted while out running July 18th, and an autopsy showed that she died from stab wounds. So there you be. Little inconvenient for the narrative when the father... You know, it's amazing. 
because here's the thing with all the rage, with all of the, the, the chest beating and the rending of robes and the gnashing of teeth uh, on immigration resulting from the murder of Molly Tibbetts, it's been in place of, it's been on behalf of the family, right? Like you, you have a lot of people who are standing in for Rob Tibbetts, who are standing in for the family saying, how horrible is this? That our policy is such that this was allowed to occur. Well, maybe before you speak for somebody who just lost their daughter and just found out that they, they were murdered in the most horrific of ways, you might want to check with them first to see what they think. To see maybe, you know, maybe they don't agree with the political narrative that you've decided to create and craft out of their personal family tragedy. Might be a worthwhile thing to do. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Another tragedy, and we talked about this earlier in the program. This one from TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Nine-year-old boy kills himself after coming out as gay. And uh, we cited this earlier just as a, a horrific example of what has become an epidemic in our culture of suicides uh, occurring when people find themselves in, in scenarios where their sense of significance is eroded and they feel as though there's no escape but there's more details to this story that I felt like we had to circle back and comment on, specifically the reaction of the mother. So, you know, just to bring you up to speed here, nine-year-old boy from Colorado took his own life just four days after telling his classmates that he was gay. Jamal Miles told his mother at the start of the summer and was excited to tell his friends when he went back to school. Again, this kid's nine years old. He went to school and said he was going to tell people he's gay because he's proud of himself, the boy's mother, Leah Pierce, told Fox 31 Denver. Unfortunately, Miles' fellow classmates were not as accepting of his sexuality as he had expected them to be, and they started bullying him. Four days after beginning the fourth grade, Miles took his own life. Four days is all it took at school. I just couldn't imagine what they said to him, Pierce said, the mother. My son told my oldest daughter that the kids at school told him to kill himself. I'm just sad he didn't come to me. The mother went on to say she believes, and this is the part that particularly perked up my ears, she believes there needs to be accountability for instances of bullying and that parents should also face punishment for the actions of their children. We should have accountability for bullying. I think the child should, but the child knows it's wrong, or because the child knows it's wrong, the child wouldn't want someone to do it to them, I think the parents should be held because obviously the parents are either teaching them to be like that or they're treating them like that, she said. <clears throat> now, before I get into reacting to these comments, let's acknowledge that a grieving mother, you know, we just cited Molly Tibbetts' father, Rob, and the, the comments that he made. Uh, in the the aftermath of the politicization of the death of his child. The mourning, grieving parents of dead children, especially recently dead children, get to say and think whatever they want, right? Like, I don't want to turn this into an attack upon Leah Pierce, the mother of this child. She gets to feel how she wants to feel right now. And I'm going to grant her uh, a lot of leeway in terms of saying what's on her mind given the emotional state she no doubt finds herself in at this point. But as to the substance of her remarks, we can't write this off as just the, 
I hate to use the word ravings, but I'm going to go ahead and say you use the word ravings. We can't just write this off as the emotional ravings of a mother who's in distress because these ideas have actually been implemented in our jurisprudence already. Recall the debate right here in Minnesota that we lost, conservatives lost, by the way, over the establishment of anti-bullying, not just policies, but a new anti-bullying bureaucracy in the state of Minnesota. A, a kind of anti-bullying overlordship committee that now has political control in St. Paul and uh, hold, holds this kind of reign on what's acceptable to think and say in schools across the state. It's predicated upon this same idea that Leah Pierce expresses in her grief, which is that parents ought to be punished, students ought to be punished, for the things that they think and the things that they say. Now, there's no acknowledgement here in her remarks. Uh, You know, the the idea that the only way a child could misbehave is if they've been taught to do that by their parents. Are you kidding me? Like, what? I think it's just because the kids get away with it. Like, the parents, they live in a somewhat entitled household, and they just know that they can get away with it. That's been my experience, at least looking back on bullying in my high school. Like, it was, oh, because the system, the school, both the school and the parents allowed them to get away with it. Well, and to the extent that that's an issue, it certainly should be addressed, but not by the law. Like, the idea sure, yeah. that the idea that government should come in and punish parents for being bad parents, just generally, for, for failing to discipline their children properly is a pretty horrendous has pretty horrendous implications in terms of what our society could end up looking like but the the mirror image of this and again you know trying to be tactful given the proximity of this tragedy and, and the mother's comments the mirror image of this is i could turn this logic around on her you want to talk about parental accountability how is your reaction to your 9 year old boy telling you that he's gay how is your reaction to accommodate and encourage him to then go to school and start saying that to his peers and talking about it as if it's a normal thing that nine-year-olds talk about in fourth grade. Again, I have a nine-year-old boy, so I can relate to these circumstances. The idea that my nine-year-old son would come up to me and, first of all, be like, hey, Dad, I'm gay, We'd be sitting down and having a pretty uh, interesting conversation for the next few hours in the event that that happened. And it wouldn't involve me being like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so educated and illuminated and, <laughs> and by, by the fact that you've discovered this about yourself at nine years old. Because here's the thing. A nine-year-old doesn't have – a nine-year-old lacks the conceptual framework in order to even conceive of what being gay means. And so what are you doing facilitating that, lending it credibility, and then putting that person, that little undeveloped person, into the world to be victimized by their peers on account of this? And this is not to take anything away from the, the in terms of responsibility from the peers, from the classmates who engaged in the bullying, completely inappropriate vile should be punished their behavior but if you want to talk about start expanding our consideration of responsibility to the parents 
I think we need to take a little bit of look at how absurd our culture has gotten to where we're we're treating children as though ch- and like single digit age children as if they have sexual autonomy that ought to be placed on par with that of an adult. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, twincitiesnewstalk.com. <laughs> Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Utzon, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com, and your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream us. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Been talking about this story uh, that you could find on TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com where a nine-year-old boy killed himself after enduring bullying when he returned to school after the summer and informed his classmates that he was coming out as gay. And his mother, uh, in grief, responding to this, has said that she feels as though the parents of the children who bullied her child should be punished under the law and held responsible for the behavior of their children and apparently takes no responsibility on herself for engendering this sense of gay identity in her nine-year-old boy and then sending him into the public schools uh, as if that was you know, there was going to be no consequence to that whatsoever. Let's go to your calls. Charlie in Richfield, welcome to the program. That is awesome. a great lead-in to what I was going to say, Walter, was the fact that where was this parent? I understand she's grieving. Right. It's a great loss, but where, where was she educating her child, stating, okay, you may encounter this, you may encounter some bullying. You may encounter this, and you need to, this is how you need to handle it. Right. Instead of just throwing them out there. I mean, if if we use her logic that the parents need to be punished, that uh, the children that bullied him, then she needs to be responsible and brought up on charges of neglect or murder for allowing her child to go into this so blindly without any preparation whatsoever. Well, and, and I appreciate the call. appreciate the thoughts, Charlie. You know, my prescription would be let's not do any of that. Let's just let's keep, hold the responsibility for actions to the individuals who took those actions. And, you know, the, look, the punishment, this, this mother is enduring whatever punishment she is due. She lost her child. And, and there's, there's nothing that we could inflict upon her that's going to be worse than what she's already going through. And I don't feel as though, you know, she's, t- she's taken an action that properly ought to be regarded as criminal. I do, however, think that she made some sketchy parental choices. I, how does a nine-year-old get the means to kill themselves? Right. Well, I mean, look, it, it's not something you expect, and I, you don't go around suicide-proofing your house for, for, for a nine-year-old, especially when you don't suspect that it's something they're going to do. I mean, the, the notion that a parent is going to be is going to be able to, through some sort of omniscience, predict that something like this is going to happen is, is also you know, a, an unlikely concept. But even so, like, and it doesn't say in this article how we went about doing it. I don't know if it was a gun. Then, the, then you get those questions. Okay, how did he get a gun? Or whatever the case may be. But the, to me, it's it has much more to do with the value set because you know as we talked about at the top of the program this evening, 
when you know people are searching for significance in their lives. And one of the ways in which nowadays, especially people define their significance in society is through their sexual orientation. And, you know, where does a nine year old even get the idea that they're gay? Where does a nine year old even get the idea that this is something that they, that, that they ought to come out and that they're going to go to school and that they're going to be praised on account of their pride? Where does he pick up this language from? And the answer, to some degree, has to be the culture, right? Because what do we see all around us? We see affirmations of the idea that coming out is this big party. We throw parades in order to celebrate what you like to do in the bedroom. This is a, this is something that is significant. This is something where you can find significance. You can find meaning. You can find belonging. And imagine, it's it's amazing to me that an impressionable child who's on the cusp of adolescence and who's becoming socially aware and wants to find a sense of significance and meaning and acceptance in his life might look at all of that and think to himself, you know what? I think I'm gay. Uh, I remember a few years back uh, when I worked for GCN, we would pick out clips that were funny from the shows that might sound funny out of context. And one of the best ones I heard from Alex Jones was he was talking, he was lamenting on the gay culture, so to speak. Yeah. And he said, I walked into the restaurant and all I saw from the waiter was gay, 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 gay. I picked up the newspaper on the table and all I, all I saw in the headlines was gay, 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 <laughs> gay. I look up the TV that they're playing above the bar and all I see is gay, 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 gay. So I think, so I think you might be onto something. Uh, anytime I did see, uh, an interesting story that I can't even repeat on the, my social media involving Alex Jones, Alex Jones and being found on an airplane uh, watching something on his phone that may be related to what we're talking about. So there you go. Another story that we haven't gotten to so far this week that, of course, is huge and deserving of our attention. Pope Francis, this is from Reuters, said on Sunday he would not respond to explosive accusations by a former top Vatican official that the pontiff had covered up sexual abuse, saying dismissively that the document containing the allegations speaks for itself. Now, I find that to be an odd turn of phrase. Yeah, the uh, the accusation against me speaks for itself. Therefore, I don't need to respond. That's a terrible response. Like, maybe something's lost in the translation. Maybe the way this was put in Italian was really elegant. Yeah, I'm assuming that's the how he responded. But, wow, that's not uh, PR 101, not the best way to go. Francis, talking to reporters aboard the plane returning from Rome or to Rome from Dublin, said he would not say one word on the 11-page document in which the former official says Francis should resign. The pontiff and journalist should read the document carefully and decide for themselves about its credibility, he said. The official accused the Pope of having known of allegations of sex abuse by a prominent U.S. cardinal for years. The document by Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, the former Vatican ambassador to Washington, was an unprecedented broadside against the Pope by a church insider. I read that statement this morning. I read it, and I will say sincerely that I must say this to you, to the reporter and all of you who are interested. Read the document carefully and judge it for yourselves, Francis said. I will not say one word on this. I think the statement speaks for itself, and you have sufficient journalistic capacity to reach your own conclusions, he said. And this, of course, has been the source of much legitimate concern and uh, controversy within the church and outside the church and about the church when we come back 
There's another institution that is also having an issue with child sexual abuse. And in fact, they're not just having a issue. They're having a greater issue than the Catholic Church is. And we're not hearing anything about it. When you find out who they are, you're going to instantly understand why. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855, the number to join us for our final segment of the evening. Let's talk to Charles in Invergrove Heights. Thanks for holding. Hi, Walter. How are you doing tonight? Doing all right. Okay. Um, I agree to the point where, you know, she should have, the mother should have definitely followed through with that on uh, the child's end. However, walking past the fact that the uh, the children involved in bullying, mm-hmm. is the parents not being responsible, mm-hmm. is totally unheard of in my in in my realm here because that's not the way i was brought up and that's not the way my parents brought me up they were responsible for my actions as well as i was like criminally under the law absolutely well i mean you should it should be i mean okay let's put it this way okay a child breaks a window from a neighbor Uh parent pays for it right there's a payment there Okay. Okay. So, so hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's a tort, not a criminal charge. Yeah. Right. First of all, that's an objective, demonstrable harm that we can put a a money number amount on and settle it. It's a tort, as Brad points out. What we're talking about here is kids being mean to another kid at school, and then that kid responding to being treated badly by going home and killing himself. How do you? How can you make the case under the law that a, the parent of the bullying child is criminally responsible for that? Simple. Simple. It's just the way it should be. Okay, where's the statute if it's so simple? Well, the statute doesn't exist. It never did, really. It was a matter of a moral thing okay. back in the day. Right, it's fair. probably before you were born. However, no, no, no. no. But, I I understand exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about the notion that. Parents are responsible for the conduct of their children. And morally, I agree with you, but that we're, there's a difference between the, the sense uh, that a, a parent is responsible for the upbringing of their child in a moral sense and stating that we ought to put parents in jail, which is what we're talking about here, because their kid was a bully and the, and the victim of that bullying went on to commit suicide. Yeah, and you and you brought up the question of how does a nine-year-old commit suicide? How does a three-year-old commit suicide, or at least try? I don't I, understand I how that's relevant. There are no three-year-olds well. involved in this story. Look, yeah, we just had a case. We we just had a case in the news not too long ago, where the actual and this was two adults, where the in act where a grown woman bullied her own boyfriend to the point where he decided to commit suicide, and the and. They attempted to bring charges, prosecutors attempted to bring charges against her for as if she held a criminal liability for causing her boyfriend's suicide, and they lost the case. Now, how are you going to tell me that a grown adult who is the direct bully of a person who goes on to kill themselves is not criminally liable, but the parent of a child who does that somehow is? 
Well, he, uh, that's where the moral end of it comes in on, on, uh, as far as the law goes. Law has gotten so thin on certain case and on, on basically almost every case it, it uh, prosecutes or, or it, uh, it brings to court. Uh, they make deals left and right. They've been doing it for years. Thank you for the Supreme Court. And they use it and they use their uh, tools. The Supreme Court again gave them to basically use blackmail and every means possible to get their, you know, what their end result. And they basically whatever they want to do, they don't let people, they don't allow people to pay for their wrongdoings. They make deals and let them walk on a lot. But of this things. this isn't totally different. This isn't this. We're not even talking about the people involved in the wrongdoing. And there's a there's a different there's a difference between well, look what this, what you're doing here is you're taking away agency from the person who decides to commit suicide. Suicide by its very nature is an action that you take against yourself. And so the 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 question becomes as, a, as an adult. Yes, I agree with you in that respect. So what? So um, however, with the with the case you just brought up, as far as the woman goes, she can be considered liable for that because but she that wasn't. is a tort control she wasn't like to where she bullied him into doing something like that as an adult he was a very strong person uh, to begin with and her taking advantage of that can be uh implied the fact so what so what so the bottom line here is and and i appreciate the call charles i appreciate you joining the program the bottom line here of the case that he's making is that in order to get to the place where where somebody else takes responsibility who didn't actually take the action, you have to eliminate the agency from the victim. So after the victim has already suffered the indignity of suicide, we're going to kill them again, metaphorically, by taking away their agency and pretending as though they didn't actually make the decision or have the responsibility to conduct themselves within the, the context of reality. The, Ultimately, what was decided in the adult case, where the where the girlfriend, as horrible and reprehensible as a person as she is, was not charged or was not uh, convicted on criminal charges based upon that, the ultimate principle that was affirmed is that as an adult, you are responsible for the context in which you allow yourself to operate. Why would you keep, as the boyfriend who has a girlfriend who's constantly telling you to kill yourself, why is she still your girlfriend? Why are you still calling her? Why are you submitting yourself to that? Why are you putting yourself in a situation? And ultimately, why are you making the, deci the decision to kill yourself? Don't, at what point do you lose your agency in that process? And when we shift the con context to children, the responsibility for the context and the environment in which children find themselves lies upon the parents. And so, again, it goes back to the mother of this kid. Why did she put him, why did she send him into a context where, through all rational expectation, you could expect that he was going to be bullied? That's not a justification for the bullying. It's not a... a it's not to say that the bullying was okay or that the bullying ought to be tolerated, but it's certainly something that you ought to expect under those circumstances. And so prepare your child for that, or better yet, avoid the situation altogether by not putting them in that situation to begin with. That's where the parental responsibility lies here, not with the parents of the other children. Closing argument, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.